Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a tech platform that is solving the talent crisis across the life sciences industry by democratizing access to the world's best expertise. I'm excited to welcome Laura Nicholson, founder, president, and CEO at Humasite. Thanks so much for joining us today, Laura. Thank you, Rahul. It's great to be here. Great. So Laura, to, to kick us off, please walk us through the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Well, you know, when I was a little girl, I was telling people from the very beginning that I was going to be a doctor and probably going to be a brain surgeon. And that was my career path until I was about 11. But, you know, when I entered college, I became very interested in medical research and I wound up pursuing combined medical and PhD training. I became an anesthesiologist and an ICU doc because I really liked taking care of patients who were very ill. I liked the challenges of that, but I was also, because of my research and bioengineering background, I became very interested in my late 20s about could we utilize bioengineering approaches to create really novel therapies for patients who were very ill. And that led me in the mid-90s to working in a lab in MIT run by Robert Langer, who I'm sure many of your listeners know of. And really the whole concept of tissue engineering was just getting started at that time. So I had had a longstanding scientific interest in vascular biology and blood vessels. And so I took on the task of trying to grow arteries from scratch in the laboratory. I carried that work to Duke University, where I was a professor. And then uh, after being at Duke a number of years, we spun out Humicite. And I spun out the company along with one of my former students and a former postdoc. And that was almost 17 years ago now. And Laura, walk us through how you came about to found Humicite and what that journey was like for you, you know, switching from being a physician to running a biotech company. It was sort of a gradual transition, I would say, you know, being an academic. I had considered for years starting a company before we actually did, but I was strongly advised by some colleagues that you know, you should probably have tenure before you embark on such a thing because starting a company always sucks away a lot more time and mental energy and ATP than you think it's going to. And that certainly turned out to be true in my case. So I waited until I had tenure, but then shortly thereafter spun the company out again with some highly skilled people who were working for me in my academic lab at the time. I was still practicing medicine with a fraction of my time and, and running my lab with the rest of my time. And so adding on a company was sort of a little bit like adding a third job. About a year or two after that, I actually put down clinical medicine. So I practiced for about a dozen years and then put that down, although I still miss it. I have to say, I, I still sometimes have dreams about working in the ICU, but I really confined my efforts to laboratory research in academia and then also spending time at my company. I was recruited to Yale after starting the company, but both Yale and Duke have policies in place like most universities where you can spend roughly 20% of your time consulting for an outside entity. And so I was an unpaid consultant for Humicite for a number of years and actually traveled back and forth between Yale and Connecticut and Humicite, which remained in North Carolina. So I split my time for a number of years in that way. After about 10 years, I actually approached Yale because we were seeing that 
sort of the time commitment that I needed to take at the company was growing. We were expanding our manufacturing processes. We were moving into phase three trials. And Yale graciously allowed me to essentially work as a half-time professor for a number of years. So I, I split my time 50-50 for about four, four and a half years between running my Yale lab and helping Humasite advance the technical mission. And then a year ago, I I bit the bullet and moved fully into the CEO role in November of 2020 and really sort of put down my academic career after more than 20 years of being a professor. And Laura, along the way, I'm sure there were many lessons learned as to, you know, what it takes to to get a company up and running and, and raising private rounds of financing before you went public. Curious how you went about surrounding yourself with the right people that had been there and perhaps done that before and and some of the challenges that you faced along the way. Yeah, well, I think surrounding yourself with the right people and also understanding that the right people on day one are not the same as the right people at year five and year 10. That is one of the biggest challenges because when you're starting a company, you don't know what you don't know. And you can read books from Amazon about starting a company for dummies. You know, you can do all that, but the amount of genuine insight you get from that is pretty small. So I was fortunate enough to befriend some sort of serial entrepreneurs who were associated with Duke University and who were sort of in the Research Triangle Park area where Humicide is located. So I was fortunate to have some close advisors from early on. I was also fortunate because one of our primary funders in the early years is my husband, Brady Dugan. He uh, had a long history in finance on Wall Street, working at Credit Suisse for many years. And so he actually provided a tremendous amount of sort of wisdom around how investors approach companies, how investors think about value creation, and just the financial markets in general. So I I was really fortunate to have at my disposal a a number of really expert people who wanted to help and who were excited by the technology and concept around the company. But that said, you know, building out the team on the technical side really is is something that you have to evolve. And it's it's very challenging. In, In the early years, most of the technical people we hired were straight out of university because we were very much still a big R and little d R&D operation. And so having more um, sort of an academic mindset to problem solving was actually important and helpful. But as we've grown the team and as we've scaled our manufacturing processes, the types of hires that we do now are, are really very different. And that has been something that there's been a lot of trial and error and a lot of feeling our way for who's the right person that we need in this seat on the bus right now. Thinking about talent is probably the thing that occupies the biggest portion of my brain the most continuously during Humicide's existence. I certainly resonate with that. (laughs) So Laura, before we jump into the work that you're doing at Humicide, paint us a picture around the regenerative medicine landscape, where that field is broadly right now, and challenges and opportunities in working in that space. So regenerative medicine has gone through, even though it's a very young field, it's already gone through a couple of cycles. You know, I would say that the earliest concepts around using cells, not just as a culture platform where you grow cells in dishes and then watch what they do, but rather using cells as building blocks to make a thing, to make a tissue. Arguably, those concepts emerged in the 1980s, and there were companies that were started in the late 80s, advanced tissue sciences, organogenesis, 
a number of others. And many of those companies had sort of very high-flying ambitions, but the science and the, the bioengineering really hadn't caught up with some of those ambitions. And so there were some early failures. So I would say there was a lot of excitement and hype around regenerative medicine or what was then called tissue engineering in the late 80s and then throughout the 90s. And some of this excitement was also spurred on by the fact that there were important advances in stem cell biology that were occurring. So for example, the human embryonic stem cell was essentially discovered in the late 1990s. And combined with the concept of tissue engineering, there were these Scientific American articles that got written about how we were going to grow hearts and lungs and kidneys, you know, because now finally we had the cell source. And of course, it would just be a few short hops to grow a liver. As we know, things are more complicated than that. But, but I think there was a lot of sort of hype in the system in the late 90s in particular. And then there were a couple of sort of early private sector failures in the early 2000s that really, I think, soured investors a little bit on regenerative medicine in general. In fact, tissue engineering had to rebrand itself as regenerative medicine in part because of that. And so now we have this new terminology. But I would say what's been very interesting for me, because Humocyte was started sort of in the tail end of that sort of trough, because we formed the company in January of 2005. You know, what's been interesting to me is that whereas early on, it really felt like an uphill climb to convince people that, yes, we could use cells to grow tissues that would be functional in patients, and that, yes, this was a doable and workable and important technology. Whereas that was a tough story to sell 15 years ago, you know, the, the field has really grown and morphed really in the last five years or even less. With the advent of various successful cell therapies like CAR T cells and various immunotherapies for cancer, and with the successful progress of growing other types of connective tissues and those tissues being successful in trials, you know, we're really seeing sort of the investment in the analyst community really shift. And so now telling a regenerative medicine story is actually cool and exciting again. But I would say it's, it's cool and exciting in a way that's much more realistic now than it was maybe 20 years ago. Great, Laura. Thanks for that background. As you look forward towards regenerative medicine over the next 20 years, what are some fundamental challenges that you think the field faces right now? Well, I think we can put the challenges for regenerative medicine maybe into a couple of buckets, or at least maybe the modes of progress. That might be another way to talk about it. You know, one thing that I think Humocytes technology has taught us and technologies of other people that have been developed in recent years is that if you're trying to regenerate functional tissues, you know, they really fall into two classes. There are connective tissues, which are tissues that serve mostly a mechanical function in your body. And then there are parenchymal tissues or, or solid organs. So an example of a connective tissue might be skin, bone, ligament, blood vessel. These are really simpler tissues that have primarily mechanical functions. And then there are more complex solid organs like liver, lung, heart, kidney, which don't really serve mechanical functions, but they serve very complex cellular functions. The reason I'm making that distinction is that I think what regenerative medicine is learning is that if you want to regenerate or replace a connective tissue, in most cases, it's probably going to be possible to do that by delivering a protein matrix, an extracellular matrix, which really provides the mechanical characteristics of the tissue. It's going to be possible to provide that to patients. In fact, that's what Humocyte has been showing in our clinical trials. The reason that's important is because an extracellular matrix tissue is non-living. 
and it can be stored on the shelf and it can be made ahead of time. So the ability to replace connective tissues in the body with other human-based tissues that can be distributed the way we distribute medical devices, I think that's how the field is going to grow. And I think that's going to be very exciting and it's going to provide a lot of value for a lot of patients. Conversely, I think for solid organs, like growing a kidney, growing a lung, growing a liver, that's still a couple decades away. I actually think that for some solid organs, the chances are excellent that, that, that we'll get there in the next 20 or 30 years. And I would put liver and lung on that list for different sort of bioengineering types of reasons. I do think that there are some organs that are going to be very difficult to regenerate. I think heart myocardium is going to be very tough to regenerate. I think kidney is going to be hard to regenerate, although maybe possible. But I think what's going to be required to regenerate those more complex organs is really a fundamental appreciation of the cues that are needed to convince billions of cells to self-organize in a way that's functional. What will also help that field tremendously will be the development of truly immune evasive stem cells like iPS cells or embryonic derived stem cells that are rendered immune evasive or are tolerated by the immune system. And obviously there's a whole plethora of companies that are trying to do just that right now. If I had to guess, I would say that that's going to have some challenges and, and I think we'll get there. And I certainly wish we were there now, but I, I don't think we have a truly immune evasive stem cell now. And I think it's going to take us a little while to get there. But once we have that, that will be very powerful for whole organ engineering. Great. Thanks, Laura, for sharing your, your perspective on the space. Now let's talk about the important work that you're pursuing at Humasite, the underlying technology and current initiatives you have in play. So Humasite's underlying technology utilizes differentiated vascular cells that we've isolated from human donors and we have banked. It uses these cells and to seed onto biodegradable scaffolds that we shape according to the size and, and the type of tissue that we're trying to grow. When we seed the cells onto the scaffold, the cells grow and they secrete extracellular matrix over a period of weeks. And while that's, while that's happening, the scaffold underneath the cells dissolves. So after about two months, humocyte can manufacture engineered human tissues of shapes and sizes that we can control. But these tissues are comprised entirely of the human cells that we seeded and then the extracellular matrix proteins that are mechanically strong that these cells have, have made. In a final step in humocytes process, we then expose these tissues that we've grown to decellularization solutions so that we're washing the cells out of the engineered tissue. The reason we do that is in order to remove the immunogenicity of the tissue and also to provide a tissue that then, because it's non-living, can be stored on the shelf. You know, we have a shelf life of a year and a half right now for our engineered tissues. And again, because we do a good job of cell removal, we've shown that we can implant these tissues into now more than 450 patients without any instances of clinical rejection. So because we're careful and thoughtful about how we grow the cells and how, how we coax them to make matrix, what we find is that these tissues are mechanically very robust. And so when they're sewn in, for example, as an arterial replacement into a patient, the vessels are mechanically very strong and can withstand blood pressure and can withstand different surgical manipulation and being punctured with needles and all sorts of things. So really the core of humocytes technology is using normal differentiated human cells to grow large numbers of mechanically robust human tissues 
which because they're decellularized are then free to go into any human recipient and can restore a number of functions. Great, Laura. And where are you now in terms of both from a funding perspective and what that's looked like over the last couple of years, and then also just from a, from a pipeline perspective? So thinking about the pipeline and our clinical development stage, we actually have two phase three programs underway. So we're fairly well into our phase three stage of development. Our products are regulated as biologics. And so when we apply for approval by the FDA, we'll be submitting a biologics licensing application. So we have late stage trials underway using our engineered blood vessels to treat patients with vascular trauma. So for example, patients who suffer car accidents or gunshot wounds who need repair or replacement of their vascular tissues acutely. We have a trial ongoing there. We also have phase three trials underway using our engineered tissues for patients who have kidney failure and who are on dialysis and who need a conduit or a blood vessel underneath their skin to support the ability to hook the patient up to a dialysis machine and cleanse their blood three times a week. So we have two phase three programs in vascular trauma and in dialysis access. We have phase two programs that are underway in peripheral arterial disease and severe limb ischemia. And we're looking at developing a phase three program in that area as well. If we look at the pipeline, because we can, again, grow these tissues in different shapes and sizes, we have late stage preclinical work going on in primates where we are using smaller versions of our engineered human tissues as coronary artery bypass grafts. So heart bypass surgery, which is one of the most common operations performed in the U.S. Often patients suffer because they don't have suitable veins to bypass their own diseased arteries. So we anticipate that humocytes engineered vessels may provide an alternative for these patients who have chest pain and who are facing heart attacks and potentially death. Our engineered vessels may serve as, as an alternative conduit to revascularize these patients. So in preparing for that, We are currently doing primate studies where we're doing heart bypass grafting with our engineered human vessels into large primates. We also are doing work in a primate model of pediatric cardiac surgery. This is a much smaller market, but several thousand babies per year are born with severe heart defects that require surgical repair. In many cases, these babies have to have multiple operations because the repair material that's used, often a plastic like Teflon, doesn't grow with the baby. And so one potential longer-term application of our technology may be that we can use our materials to repair the broken hearts of babies that are born with cardiac anomalies. And we are doing experiments to determine now whether these engineered tissues will then grow with the infant so that these babies don't have to have repeat operations later in life. So we're very excited about those elements in our pipeline, and we have some other elements in the pipeline as well. You know, as far as our financing, we were publicly funded for a number of years by a fairly, you know, dedicated group of savvy private investors. And having that private and patient capital really allowed us to prove out the technology to get into man and to get some long-term clinical data, but also to build our manufacturing pipeline so that we're actually now at full commercial scale for our manufacturing. So Humicite was privately funded until, frankly, just a few months ago when we closed a financing by executing a reverse merger uh, with a SPAC company, Alpha Healthcare. 
And we raised uh, $245 million in gross proceeds with that transaction. But prior to that, we had been privately funded, and that, that had allowed us to really mitigate a lot of perceived risk with this really first-in-class technology. And Laura, what was it like starting to trade on the public markets during the pandemic? Well, I would say that, you know, going through a, a SPAC reverse merger, it was a very interesting process. We had considered going public by a typical IPO route, but for a variety of reasons, including the quality of the SPAC partner and the fact that the timelines allowed us to interact more with investors during our roadshows, we chose to go the SPAC route. So we announced the SPAC, the intent to merge in mid-February, and then completed the merger uh, near the end of August on August 26th. But during that time, in between the announcement and the merger, we spent a lot of time interacting with investors and analysts. And during that time also, there were a lot of undulations in the SPAC market because the SEC was coming out with new regulations for how SPACs should report uh, various types of liabilities and warrants and such. It was an exciting time, exciting in a positive and some maybe a negative way. There were a lot of things that we were all learning collectively, I think, in the broader financial markets about SPACs in general. But one of the interesting things about doing this all in the middle of a pandemic is, you know, I tell people, you know, I I took my company public from my office, didn't do a single in-person meeting with an investor or a banker or an analyst at all. In fact, some of these investors and analysts I met for the first time when we uh, rang the bell in New York and had a celebration after we closed. So that in itself was, it was very efficient, but it was probably a little bizarre. And for those folks that are not familiar with SPACs, just talk a little bit about as a biotech company going through the SPAC process and perhaps some of the benefits that biotechs may face by going that route. So I think a SPAC route can be advantageous from a number of standpoints. One of the big advantages and one of the reasons that Humasite decided to go with the SPAC route is that, again, if we think about the COVID era and if we think about the standard IPO process, as many of your listeners will know, if you're considering going public, you might raise a crossover round and you go out and you test the waters and you try to get some assessment of the appetite of the investment community for the offering. But when you do finally you know, do the IPO roadshow, it's typically a very compressed time period. And you might have 30 or 40, 45 minute meetings with a large number of investors. And then at the end of the week, all the investors have to decide whether or not they're going to come in and you price the deal and then you're done. And so the time for the company to tell the story to prospective investors is now very compressed. And for some companies, I think that works well. But for biotech companies that are kind of one of a kind or that are creating a new space, you know, frankly, it can be hard or impossible to really tell your story in a 45-minute window. And so for us, it was actually very advantageous because even prior to the announcement of the merger, while we were raising a pipe, which is with public investment in a private entity, while we were raising that investment vehicle, we actually had many weeks, well, four or five weeks to talk with investors. And so we had multiple meetings with many investors. And for Humasite's story, because it's a sort of out of the box story, the more we can meet with people and explain what we've accomplished and where we are, the better they understand the story, the more they understand the value. 
And so it really helped us do a very successful financing because we could tell our story because we had time to do that. And Laura, on the topic of the pandemic, what's it been like running you know, several late stage clinical trials over the last 18 months? And I think more importantly, what are some of the lessons learned around what you and your team have had to do to adapt to this new reality? Well, I think like many companies, uh, Humasite has had to work against the headwinds that are imposed by COVID and clinical trial enrollment. Our enrollment challenges have sort of gone in waves, in time waves and in geographic waves as COVID has moved around the country and ebbed and flowed. We found that we have had to do a lot more site-facing work where we reach out, our clinical team and our medical affairs team reaches out directly to sites and to investigators to remind them about the trial, remind them that, that we're still trying to reach our recruitment goals. And so it's just been a lot more sort of direct site-facing activity because, frankly, clinicians and clinical trial coordinators are very distracted with COVID. They can't come into the building. You know, there are more impediments to getting non-COVID research done, et cetera, et cetera. We've had to just sort of lean into that and put more effort into it. And it has slowed our trials down, but we're still enrolling and, you know, we're still sort of keeping to our timelines. So that's generally good. It's just if it's more effort. I would say as far as running the company, we had different phases of how we coped with the pandemic. So pre-vaccine, we did a lot of testing. So we, we had some people working from home, but we have many people who have to come into the building because we're making product and we're doing experiments and you can't do that from home. So we did a tremendous amount of testing and filled out a lot of questionnaires. And we probably spent, during the COVID phase, we probably spent a million dollars in a 10-month period just testing our employees. But that resulted in there being zero transmissions in the building. So I think people felt very safe and they felt like they could come to work. Several months after the vaccines became available, we made the strategic decision in April to actually mandate vaccination for all of our employees who work in the building. And that, that mandate took effect in July. Prior to doing that, rolling that policy out, we actually did a lot of teaching with the company. Uh, we talked a lot about sort of the scientific basis of the vaccine, how it's made, why it's safe, why it's expected to have you know, very few long-term side effects. So we talked about that a lot with our employees and again, because we're a biotech company, I think they were kind of more receptive to that information than other companies might be. But in any event, we were very fortunate because when we sort of fully implemented the vaccine requirement, we actually didn't lose anyone. Everybody in the company, we either found a way to accommodate them to work at home or they agreed to become vaccinated. And so everybody in the building is vaccinated now, and it really hasn't been a problem with retention. And it hasn't been a problem with new recruitment. So it was a difficult thing to execute in the spring, but I'm very glad we did it because we're now sort of, you know, all of the noise that's bubbling around this, we're sort of sitting above it all. Yeah, that's great, Laura. And happy to hear that it, it went off well for you and your team. I'm curious, has your hiring strategy or approach changed over the last you know, two years or so as it relates to remote talent versus talent in your RTP facility? Well, certainly I would say yes and no. I mean, certainly I think I've figured out and I think we've all figured out, everybody in the world has figured out that we can do a lot more remotely than we ever thought possible. I think two years ago, Wall Street bankers would never have thought that you could take a company public while sitting in your chair. Everybody would have laughed at that. Like, of course you can't do that, but turns out you absolutely can do that. 
I certainly recognize that. And I think we as a company recognize that, that there are jobs that frankly can be done from home. So some of our teams work largely from home. But I would say there's a flip side to that is that I think we've also learned that particularly for new topics, for discovery topics, for solving technical problems, for trying to get complex ideas across that are new, for trying to sort through things as a group, there are huge benefits to physically being in person. And I really don't think it's true that 12 people on Zoom is the same as 12 people in a room who can go to the board and you know sketch out ideas. So I think we as a company have come to learn some of the limitations of remote work And so we are trying to gradually transition back to, you know, making sure that for those tasks and those folks who really benefit from being in person, that we try to make that happen. That's a process, you know, because people have gotten used to working from home and the labor market is very tight. You can't push people to do something that that they would rather not do because there are a million jobs around the corner. And so retaining our outstanding people is obviously very important. As time goes on, I think many of our people are seeing value in being in person. One of the things you and I had talked about before we started recording was perhaps the dearth of female leaders in biotech and just you know how unique that experience of being a female founder can be, particularly in this industry. If you could share your perspective on what that journey was like for you and perhaps for our listeners, where there still remain opportunities for improvement. Well, you know, Humasite is unique in that it was a three-woman combo founding the company. It was myself and Shannon Dahl and Juliana Blum. So three women starting a a cutting-edge technology at a difficult time for regenerative medicine. I would not say that was the easiest path anybody could have taken. So, you know, I think that there is a little bit of an expectation, and I don't think it's sort of subconscious. But there is an expectation that if you have a woman or a group of women trying to do something that's very new and very hard, there's kind of a feeling like, well, they're probably not going to succeed in that. Or let's sit back and let's see if they can really make that work. So certainly early on, and early on, I would define as the first five or 10 years, early on, there was a lot of a, a lot of expectation of, well, you know, that seemed to have worked okay so far, but, you know, it may not keep working. So let's just keep watching that. And none of it was, I don't think, conscious or or it wasn't sort of overt, but there was kind of an expectation that, you know, maybe they won't make this work. So that certainly made it harder to raise money. And in some ways, it made it harder to recruit talent, although not really. I mean, I think the flip side there was that because Humasite has this strong sort of female founder tradition, we've never, ever, ever in the building had, had a situation where if you're in a meeting and if you're talking you're talked over by a man because you're a woman. I mean, that just, it just doesn't happen. And so we've been able actually to attract some really outstanding women to very important positions. And part of the attraction is that they know when they come here, they don't, they don't have to fight up that extra little bit because of their gender. So in some ways it's it's actually helped us get really outstanding talent while at the same time, it's made it a little harder in the early years to get investment. And Laura, looking back at your career now from being a practicing physician to now leading a publicly traded biotech, I'm I'm sure there's many areas where you feel like you could have done something differently. And so for the benefit of of our listeners, what's one thing you wish you could tell your younger self? What's one thing I wish I could tell my younger self? I guess I would say that 
while you need to be open to inputs because you really don't know everything. And if I've learned anything about trying to run a business, it's that there are lots of people who do lots of things much better than I do in in many categories. So on the one hand, I think you have to be open to not knowing things and that being okay. But that's not what I would tell my younger self, because I think my younger self knew that. I questioned my own abilities, even in stuff that I knew I was good at. I allowed myself to be talked out of stuff that I thought was almost certainly right. I allowed myself to be talked out of stuff a little bit too often. Well, maybe these people know something that I don't know. So even though I think this is really wrong, I'll go along with this anyway. And I think as a younger woman, I think that that's something that that is maybe a tendency. I certainly had that. But looking back, I I would say that most of the time when I did that, it turned out that, yeah, that really was wrong. (laughs) And we probably shouldn't have done it that way. And so I think it's this dualism of, you know, knowing what you don't know. But at the same time, if you are confident in what you know, then, you know, sticking by your guns, because at the end of the day, that's better for the company. Great. Well, on that note, and with that salient advice, Laura, thanks so much for, for joining us today for sharing a bit about your background and the important work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Humicide. Well, thank you, Rahul. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.